Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to this week's Attacking Scrum podcast. Thanks for downloading. Uh, we've got some European rugby to look forward to next week. And uh, delighted to say that I was joined by Steph Thomas to do that. Obviously, you'll have uh, heard Steph on the podcast before. Uh, top journalist and good friend of the show. Of course, we previewed uh, Dragons versus Bristol. And, of course, the Scarlets away at Toulon. So all of that coming up. But we also looked at the other big news story of the week, which was the launching of the Autumn Nations Cup, as it's set to be called, and the decision that the broadcast rights are going to be on Amazon Prime. So a move away from free-to-air rugby for the Welsh national side, which, um, as you can imagine, has created quite a lot of news this week. So we have a look at that, but also what the the long-term solutions are for for world rugby and international rugby and how that might affect the region. So I had a really good chat with Steph about some of those permutations and I think particularly what uh, what the autumn should look like in the long term. And uh, yeah, really, really good to chat to him and really interesting stuff. Uh, so all of that as well as the preview of the European quarterfinals are coming up. As always, a big thanks to our sponsors at So Coffee Trades. I've been particularly reliant on this stuff over the weekend as I've been trying to decorate our house and spend every working hour and uh, spare hour over there so a big thanks to them on and off the pitch Welcome to another episode of the Attacking Scrum podcast. Plenty to get through this week and uh, we've got some European Cup quarterfinals to look forward to, albeit the Challenge Cup rather than the Heineken Cup, but nonetheless uh, some exciting stuff there. We also have uh, the big news story of the week with uh, Wales' autumn games going behind the paywall on Amazon Prime, so we'll be looking at all of these things and I'm delighted to say that joining me to do that is Stefan Thomas. How are you, Steph? 
Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yes, not too bad. Thanks. Uh, last time we spoke was, I guess, just ahead of the uh, just ahead of the Welsh derbies, and I remember we were saying at the time, as good as it was to have rugby back, it felt like a bit of a you know a bit of a phony war, and it was hard to get excited. What do you feel with regards to these European quarters? Uh, you know, presumably a bit more on the line. Do these kind of get you a bit more excited? Yeah, a lot more excited. Um, obviously, from a Welsh perspective, you've got the Dragons um, going to Bristol and the Scarlets travel to Toulon in the um, European Challenge Cup quarterfinals. You know, the, as we said, prior to the regional derbies, um, the Scarlets had a mathematical chance, but, but realistically, they were they were glorified pre-season games. But, you know, these are, this is cup rugby now. You know, you lose, you're out. Um, so, really looking forward to them and... In terms of the main Champions Cup, I think there's some cracking games there as well. You know, the, the quality would be really high. Um, it's the closest you can get to Test Rugby. So, yeah, I'm really excited. Before we get on to the Welsh regions, which of those Heineken Cup quarterfinals uh, you know, are you most looking forward to? Um, for me personally, I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of really, really good games. But I think the um, Leinster um, mm. Saracens one is the one that, that really stands out, doesn't it? I mean, Saracens have. Um, you know they've had a rough season um, to put it mildly and obviously you know they they're a competitive you know they've got a really strong culture of Saracens and obviously they say the right things in the press before um, before premiership games but the realistic aspect of it is that they've been relegated and they've been effectively playing dead rubbers for the past four or five months and I think they would have the talking camp would have been Everything would have been centred in this Champions Cup quarter final in Dublin. It's effectively, you know, England against Ireland. It's, you know, Leinster are the form side in the Northern Hemisphere, haven't lost a game this season. Um, obviously, won the Pro 14 this week. And Saracens, obviously, they've, they've had a write off of a season, but we know that Saracens at their best can beat Leinster as they've shown in last season's final. Farrell being out as a you know, it's a, it's a huge, huge setback for them. But um, I, I think this is going to be a test match and everything. But names, so um, that, that's that's the game that stands out. But they're all they're all going to be quality contests. I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That is that is the one that uh, the one that you can yeah you can just see the the level of intensity getting stepped up because, like you say, the it's been a write off of the season for Saracens. We've criticised, and I know I certainly have the intensity of the of the Pro 14 uh, throughout. Well, throughout its existence, really, um, but actually, the the Premiership has been the same really since uh, since lockdown came back. Because as well as having Saracens relegated, you've also got uh, you know you've also got sides having to play in two games every week. So it does it does give you a lot of um, a lot of dead rubbers into the into the mix, which you know we're not perhaps not used to seeing with English rugby. But yeah, when it comes to this one, you're right; it, it's going to feel it's going to feel pretty close to a test match. Just before we get onto the Welsh sides, though, I did want to pick your brains. You mentioned Owen Farrell. Obviously, there's been a huge amount of coverage with regards to uh, not only the tackle last week, but also the uh, the, the penalties that he's uh, that he's incurred with his, his suspension. Just wanted to get your take on that, first and foremost. Um, well, what can you say? There has been out there. I mean, it was uh, an extremely dangerous tackle, wasn't it? It was high... Um, led to the law red card. I I just think, you know, we he's been criticised for his tackle technique for a very long time, and if truth be told, he's been 
very lucky not to receive more red cards in his career. So I don't think it should be a shock to anyone. Personally, I think the the sort of um, the amount of time he's been banned for is quite lenient. I think mm. it could have been a lot longer. Um, I think it's an absolute farce that Eddie Jones, his national coach, is allowed to um, almost intervene in a disciplinary process. I think that's I think it's a massive conflict of interest. I'm sure most people would agree with that. So, look, I just think you know he's he's a great player. He's he's a great competitor. You know, he's not a dirty player, but that that was a reckless challenge. It was stupid, and he he deserves everything he gets. Um, hopefully, he'll it will mean that he'll sort of amend the way he tackles, um, and he'll think long and hard about it in the future. But yeah, I mean, fully agree with the. With the suspension, and um, you know, as I said, I think it should have been a lot, um, lot stricter. Yeah, fair enough. Right, let's uh, let's let's jump into the two quarterfinals featuring the, the Welsh sides. We're going to start with Dragons versus Bristol. Um, I suppose on you know, well, certainly on paper, Bristol were going to this heavy favourites, but I just wanted to touch on home advantage to start with. From what you've seen in the game since lockdown, has home advantage been negated a bit by? The lack of crowds, or have you still seen that that playing at home still gives you a significant advantage? No, I think it has been negated. I mean, I think you'd still prefer to play at home than travel, wouldn't you? Mm. But you know, you look at a lot of the results in the in the Gallagher Premiership, especially they've been sort of all over the place, haven't they, in terms of um, away wins and, and the like. And you know, Dragons have only got to go about forty five minutes up the road, so you know, there's going to be no crowd. So I, I don't think, you know, the, the the venue of the game is going to really have any impact on the result, really. The main impact on the result will be the fact that the Dragons aren't the strongest in the front five, and um, that's where Bristol are significantly stronger, and that's where they they likely win the game. But uh, in terms of um, the game being played at, at Ashton Gate, given the fact there's no crowd, I don't think that's going to have any impact on, you know, on on the result. And talking about you know kind of team selection and things like that, Bristol were in action today. They lost to Wasps with a heavily changed side. You would imagine that that is in preparation for the game. I mean, to be fair, English sides are having to, to rotate quite a bit anyway. But with the uh, you know with a, a European quarter final looming, albeit in the second tier, you know both sides are going to be going into this fully loaded team selection wise. You'd expect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you touched on it there. Um... You know, the English sides have absolutely no choice but to rotate their teams because of the the crazy scheduling with the the midweek fixtures. And you know, Pat Lamb I think has been quite vocal about the fact that they are targeting silver this season. The Challenge Cup is a priority for them. That the weakness with the Challenge Cup, of course, is that a lot of teams don't prioritise it. Mm-hmm. But but Bristol are. Um, you know, the, the Dragons are obviously in a stronger proposition than they than they would have been if if. The pandemic hadn't hit. You know they've recruited well. You know we we all know, but Nick Tompkins, he's brought. He was impressive in the in the Welsh derbies. You know John Holmes will hopefully be available as well. Greg Bateman adds a bit of grunt up front, but on the whole, I think uh, you know you look at the Dragons pack. They've got an outstanding back row. Their um, their backline is greatly improved, especially with Tompkins, as I said. But the front five, you know, they lost Corey Hill. You know Bateman's a good. Good club player, but he's not—he's not like a top-end international player. So I think you know, if you look at the if you looked at the, the way the Dragons played against the Scarlets, I know they had a very weak in front row, but they played some really good rugby. Uh, but they were just absolutely taking to the cleaners in the front five. 
Leon Brown obviously improved things. Um, Elliot D as well, but I, I just think that that is an area where Bristol are significantly stronger than them, and um, I, I do expect Bristol to win the game fairly comfortably. If you're Dean Ryan going into this fixture, any areas of weakness in the <laughs> Bristol side, or any areas that you think the Dragons will be able to exploit? I think sometimes, um, you know, you look at Bristol; they, they they play quite a lot of rugby in terms of they they like to put it through the hands. Um, so they got, they got a strong pack and forwards and they can play the, play the percentages, but a lot of rugby is really high risk. Mm. Um, so I think, I think obviously Sam Davis would be key for the Dragons. But when Sam, if, if anything happened to Sam Davis, they'd be in serious trouble. Their chances of winning games would just plummet, to be honest. He's been a, a, a real key signing for them. Because yeah, he's he can play to the game line. You know, he's he's a very creative player, but his game management is is second to none. Go excellent goal kicker as well. So he's he's going to be key for them. And I think you know it's just it's just playing smart rugby really. But you just look at Bristol, right? You just look across their team. You know, we know some people would argue Sammy Randrada is the best player in the world at the moment. Mm-hmm. Certainly in the the top three or four. Anyway, um, you know they got some. Brilliant backs, as I said. They've got one of the best coaches in the world. But they are significantly stronger than the Dragons in the front five. And I, I, just, I just don't think the Dragons have the personnel to, to really compete with them in that area. I think they're back, if they have, to have any chance of winning, their back row has got to really do a job. That's one area where they can match, if not better, Bristol. But there's too much of a gulf between both tight fives, in my opinion. So uh, I'm, I am... I'm not saying it's going to be one-sided, but I'm struggling to see them causing an upset. And you mentioned that obviously we, you know, we kind of look back at the the Welsh derbies there, and you touched on the Dragons versus Scarlets. Have you seen anything from? I mean, again, Dragons have chopped and changed their lineup somewhat during those games. Have you seen anything within there that you know is uh, is signs of encouragement? Yeah, definitely. I, I think in the um, <clears throat> they were the I think they were the better team against the Ospreys. Um, they, they should have won that game. They they had the most of territory, the better of territory and possession. Obviously, they they had a man advantage most of the game, which which helps. But they they were very rusty. They made too many errors. But you know, you'd be more concerned if they weren't creating opportunities and putting themselves in positions to create them. Against the Scarlets, I thought they played some really good rugby. I think they um, they cut the Scarlets open a couple of times. But as I said, the power the Scarlets had in the front five was just too much for them. But I think that the brand of rugby that, that Dean Ryan is getting them to getting them playing, I think that's that's a big positive. Tompkins, you know, is a is a top end player and he he adds something that they haven't had for a long time behind the scrum. Hopefully Jamie Roberts and John Holmes will be um available soon as well. So um I think that their backline is looking a lot better than it has for over ten years. Um as I said, they've got a master tactician in Sam Davis and their back rows as good as most in, in the Pro 14. But so th- those, you know, and, and they are a difficult team to beat. They they were a very they had a very soft underbelly before Dean Ryan, and he's at the very least made them into a very tricky, sort of awkward team to play against. Mm. Um but you know, they're still at base camp and they, you know, they were coming from a very low point. So you've got to put everything into context. So yeah, I think this is the first time for a long time you can see improvement, but they're not at the stage where they can realistically expect to go to a place like Ashton Gate and get a win. Stranger things have happened, of course, but uh, 
as I said, I think uh, I think Bristol are the, the strong favourites. Yeah, I think undoubtedly they're heavy favourites. Base camp's an interesting analogy, actually. I, I, I think that it's, for me, this game, although I, I don't think there is much expectation on Dragons to get the win, unless, you know, they have an absolute stormer and, and really catch really catch Bristol off guard. For me, this is the acid test in terms of how far they, they're able to, uh, to improve. Because again, Dean Ryan's been quite open in saying that they've been targeting this game and, you know, have looked to, to change the, to change the, the lineups experiment a little bit. You know, like we said, really those games were, were kind of pre-season friendlies or along those lines. So for me, this is the opportunity to see, can you compete with, uh, you know, with, with some of the, the top sides in, in Europe now, even, you know, this is might sound pessimistic, but if, if 60 minutes gone, the Dragons are still in the game, I think that that, that does show a, a, a real step in the right direction because, again, it's the kind of game that, um, you know, perhaps in the past you might get blown away. But, you know, oddly, Dragons have an extraordinarily good record at the quarterfinal stage in this um, in this tournament. You know, with wins against against Gloucester and uh, Gloucester and Cardiff in the in the past. So, you know, like you say, stranger things have happened. But for me, it's it's an acid test as to how far things are moving in the right direction. This this is the game to to kind of judge the season on, really. Yeah, definitely. As you said, they have actually got a, a pretty a good record of shocking teams in the quarterfinals. You know, they they had that win up in. Um, King's home against Gloucester, I think it was about five years ago. So, you know, it's a cup game, isn't it? You know, it's cup rugby, it's on the day. Um, you know, Bristol could get a red card in the first 10 minutes and then it's game on, isn't it? So anything can happen. But, uh, you know, as I said, I, I just think, you know, Bristol have had a couple of heavy losses recently. I think the main reason for that is because they've rotated. Mm. Um, but on their day, when they're, they're full strength, they're a very formidable outfit. They probably got a are one of the best coaches in European rugby, anyway. And uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, if I was a betting man, I'd uh, be putting my money on uh, on a home win. You mentioned that a couple of times the the quality of the coaching from Pat Lamb, and I absolutely agree. I that to me is why this is a Bristol side to be, you know, to be not just not just with regards to this game, but generally, this is why I think it is a a real side to, to keep your eye on because we all know about the, the quality of the signings that they've made. And, you know, when you're able to bring in the likes of Sinclair and, and Randranda, it's, it's a, it's a statement and they've made other statement signings like it in the past as well. But the, the real thing is, is how they're able to gel and the, and the work ethic and the culture and the, and the, and the tactics on the day. And that's the bit that I think, you know, arguably I'd say Pat Lamb is, is more important than any of those players. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, as you said, you know, Bristol, owned by Steve Lansdowne, you know, they're one of the wealthiest clubs in world rugby, let alone British rugby. And obviously, they have signed marquee players like Yosemi Randradra. As I said, you know, some would argue he's the best player in the world at the moment. Kyle Sinclair's, uh, you know, in my opinion, if the Lions were playing next week, he'd be ahead of Furlong mm-hmm. as a tight end. So they have, they have signed these top-end world-class players. But if you look at some of the other signings, right? Had you heard of Carlum Sheedy really mm. before he'd signed for Bristol? Had you heard of Hardy, well, Hardy Randall, obviously, who's at Gloucester, but he wasn't getting much game time? Had you heard of um, uh, Johan Lloyd as well? You know, the, this teenager that's come from nowhere virtually. Um, and, you know, suddenly he's in the 23, making a huge impact. So, you know, Pat Lamb is very good at spotting 
players who, you know, in the championship or in, in the Welsh regions, maybe, who haven't particularly made an impact elsewhere. I know Johan Lloyd's a kid. I mean, he would have he would have come through anywhere. I think he's that good. But, you know, he's the point I'm trying to make is he picks players who aren't fashionable elsewhere and turns them into effective players. Um, he That's a sign of a good coach, isn't it? Somebody who improves players. You know, it's all well and good having superstar players, but if you look at what Pat Lamb did at Cornwall, who had a very average playing roster, apart from maybe Bundyaki and Robbie Henshaw, and I know the season they won the Pro 12 was a World Cup year, and, you know, they played some weakened teams and whatnot, but the job he did at Cornwall was just define what sort of coach he is. And as I said, Bristol have got superstar signings, but for Pat Lamb, you just get a sense that it's about culture first. And the fact that he signed some of these players who have 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 like Callum Sheedy, who maybe hadn't made it originally and had to go play in the English Championship, etc. Um, not specifically Sheedy, but other players as well, and have had to do the hard way. He wants that attitude in his squad. He doesn't just want somebody coming in on seven hundred thousand pound yeah. a year or a million allegedly, like or just under a million, like Pietau, who has been a great signing. But he wants these other players as well. You know, it, it keeps them hungry. It keeps the the culture strong in the squad, and and that's that's Pat Lamb, I think. Yes, he wants his superstar signings, but he everything's about building from the bottom up. And I think he is uh, he's a nailed on future international coach, isn't he? Well, that I think he absolutely is. The the question as to where is is going to be a, is going to be a fascinating one. I I guess we'll have to wait until after the next World Cup cycle to uh, to find that out. But yeah, I mean. His CV today is mighty impressive, but as you said, right at the right at the top of the show, he'll be targeting silverware, and that will all start. Uh, you know that the hunt for that all starts uh, this uh, this Friday against uh, against the Dragons. So um, well, well, there's pressure, isn't there? Because mm. if, if you think about it, right? You know, Steve Lansdowne, how much money has he put into Bristol? He's put millions in. You know, I I don't know. I only know what I've read. But Piat how allegedly on a million pound a year, r- roughly a million pound a year. You know, the Challenge Cup is a good opportunity to, you know, to win silver and to justify the money he's spending on that squad, isn't it? So, um, you know, let's make no bones about it. Lamb is under pressure. He's he's going to have to win silver sooner or later. And, you know, Premiership, I can see him winning the Premiership in the future, but I think, you know, maybe a few years away from that. So the Challenge Cup is a good opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to, to I know they've won the Championship, but in terms of serious silver, it's a really good opportunity for them, I think. Absolutely right. We're going to go on and look at uh, look at the scarlet and some of the other news stories from the rest of this week. Uh, we're going to do that in just one moment after this very very quick break. Time then, Steph, to take a look at the Scarlets. And uh, once again, they head over to France for a, uh, a European quarterfinal. Uh, you mentioned in the first half that it's going to be a very, very tough task for the Dragons uh, at Bristol. What then of the Scarlets' chances? Um, I think they have a significantly better chance of winning than the Dragons. I, I think Toulon are the favourites. They, you know, they, they may not quite be the the team they were when they won three Heineken Cups on, on the bounce, but they're still one of the best teams in France. They certainly got one of the biggest packs in, in world rugby. 
Um, but I, I honestly think the Scarlets have a very good chance to go in there and get a result. Because if you look at the Scarlets have played too long on a number of occasions in Europe, mostly in the in the Champions Cup, but every single game has been very close. Mm. You know, there's not been more than twelve points or ten points in in the <clears throat> in the games, and every single game has followed an almost identical narrative. When Toulon keep it tight, when they play one up rugby, you know, with shoving it up the jumper with a big ball carriers playing almost ten man rugby, then the Scarlets struggle. But when the Scarlets are able to play the game on their terms, then Toulon struggle. And the results have all been quite tight. I mean, they played each other twice in the pool stage. Scarlets were very, very unlucky to to lose out in France. And Tavita Rotuva had the moment of madness, a red card. Yeah. And I think the Scarlets probably should have had about three penalties in the last 10 minutes when they were doing their best impression of Rope's drift on the try line. So um, you were unlucky to win, to lose that. Toulon deserved to win in Clinetti, but... I think the weather beat the Scarlets as much as Toulon did. And I think if you look at this game, um, I'm not sure what the forecast is in France, of course, but uh, you'd expect it to be, you know, since south of France, it should be a pretty firm ground. So that'll, that'll suit the Scarlets, I think. And as I said, the Scarlets have, have, may have struggled a bit physically against them, but I think they've, they've recruited really well in their pack. Um, you know, Sam Lousy, um, he was there last year, but he's settled now. I think he's a high-caliber signing. I think Sione Calmaforni as well is going to add something to them. Um, Samson Lee being fully fit and scrummaging well is is also a, a big boost. So I think the Scarlet's pack, yeah, it's not it's not quite as abrasive as Toulon's, but I think it's got enough about it to, to keep them in the game. And I, I honestly think, you know, this is a golden opportunity for them to go out there and get a result. As I said, Toulon are the favourites, but I think they stand a puncher's chance in this game. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And obviously we won't know the we won't know the sides until later on in the week. But if you were in Delaney's shoes and you had to pick that side, what are you doing? Are you deliberately beefing up that pack or are you still looking to keep a balance within their because you're going to want to keep ball in hand and play some quick rugby, especially if you're able to turn some ball over. What would you be thinking in terms of selection? You, you don't want to get into an arm wrestle with Toulon. It's a balance, as you said. You don't want to get into an arm wrestle with them because their pack is big in the context of French packs. Mm. You know, they, they got, they're big in comparison to the likes of Clermont, let alone some, some of the, the Pro 14 sides. But I think that, you know, you have to pick a big pack. Um, you know, you... Lewis Rawlings, one of my unsung heroes in Welsh rugby, outstanding in the derbies. But you know, for this game, you, you got to bring in Jake Ball, I think, and Sam Lousy. It's a big. I'm not really. I'm not sure at the moment what the the situation is with Tavita Atuva, who's a who's like a monster, really, with mm. his carrying and his physicality because he's been stuck in Fiji. I think they were expecting him back for this game. He he'd help, but I think I think Carl Mafoni's got to start. Um, definite. Um, they'll still have that fetcher at open side. I think they'd pick McLeod over James Davis. And then obviously it'd probably be Kasim at blindside. So I, th- I think they've got to pick a big pack. Mm. Um, I don't think that's going to stop, change the way they play the game, but it's just going to give them a bit bit of a better chance to play that way, really. And one point, key point as well, in the game in Flanetti in January, their best players were um, Eben Estabeth, obviously one of the best locks in the world. He's out. And... Um, 
Bello as well was was man of the match. He, he ran the show. He's out as well. Obviously, they got a ridiculous amount of strength and depth, but um, that's a boost to them as well. So I'm really looking forward to this game. I I I honestly think they you know I'm probably jinxing them now. They probably lose their forty points, but uh, they they have got a realistic chance of winning. And um, you know the only problem is are they undercooked coming into the game? I know they played the two derbies, but as I said, they were like glorified pre-season games and they, they weren't the highest intensity going. It was too long. I've played two top 14 games. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's, it's going to be a very difficult ask, but it, it, is a, it is a question that they can answer positively. What about in the backs then for the Scarlets? What are the, which, yeah, I guess, which players would you be looking to call upon this? There's more options there in that back line now, and it's it's kind of much changed. I think particularly in the particularly in the centres with you know with Hadley Parks going out and the likes of Johnny Williams coming in. Who would you be looking to form the the basis of that back line? Yeah, well, um, Jonathan Davis is back training, and they they were hopeful that he'd be available for this game, so that'd be a huge boost. Whether it's wise, to, despite mm. the quality of the player, whether it's wise to throw him straight in against Toulon, I mean, I I don't know. I, I personally would have him involved. Um, I, you know, Liam Williams. Not sure if he's going to be fit, but a back three of Halfpenny McNichol and Steph Evans is, you know, it's not too shabby, is it? You know, that's a backline that can that can score tries, and you know, with Halfpenny, you've got one of the best goal kickers around. But an interesting selection will be um, uh, outside half because Patchell is expected to be fit. For me, Patchell gives the Scarlets an extra dimension in attack. Mm. He's the one that makes their backline tick more than anyone. Um, including Jonathan Davis, but Dan Jones, you know, was outstanding against the Dragons, playing really well. So um, that'll be an interesting call. Personally, I think you pick your best players. So I pick Foxy and Patchell. Um, but yeah, I mean, they they got more. The Scarlets have got significantly more depth than the other regions, haven't they? That's why they've been better. So um, it's good to have those headaches. So in terms of this game, you know, Toulon are the favourites, and rightly so, but. I do think the Scarlets can realistically win. Yeah, I mean, just to just to build on that point you've said there, and I've, I've mentioned this numerous times, that when it comes to when it comes to recruitment, and you mentioned this with Bristol as well, right? Bristol are not just a, a side to be reckoned with purely because they signed Piertau and Randrander and, the, and 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 Sinclair and players of that ilk. You said there that squad players they bring in squad players, they make them better, and they push them for. And they end up pushing for first team, you know, for the first team jerseys, and that is the the key to to having a, a strong squad. Now, I think you're quite right. The Scarlets do have the the, the the most depth amongst the the four Welsh regions, but that yeah, and that has come down to the fact that generally speaking, in the last four or five years, their recruitment has been has been really, in fact, probably a little bit longer. It's it's about picking up those uh, those rough diamonds of players who perhaps aren't top of the uh, top of the wish list of other players but you can see the potential in there and and that's the thing that that they've been able to do very very well and and again yeah. I think that that means that when it comes to games like this you then have those options and players pushing for pushing for contention regardless of, of injury or availability yeah definitely I mean it's going back a number of years now but Lewis Rawlings was playing for um, cross keys I know this. This kills me every time. Like every time he plays for the Scarlets, right. I just think he would be a, he he would be a legend in a dragon shirt by now. If if 
if someone within the within the setup at the time had taken a look at this guy at cross keys and gone, oh yeah, right, we we need to get him training with the dragons, and uh, you know, it, it's been that one position that they needed someone of yeah. real grunt, and he he just does it every time he's called upon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's written in the head. It's uh, I don't know. I suppose it sums up the the incompetency of the dragons down the years, isn't it? Um, obviously, again, they're at together now, which is great. But yeah, Rawlings is one of these players. He's probably not an international player, but he's just he's just a perfect Pro 14 player, isn't he? When you lose all your internationals and he's there week in, week out, hard tackler, massive worker, good line of forward, really hard player, great attitude. Dragons have had a soft pack for a long time. He's exactly, you know, he wouldn't have cost that much, right? They would yeah. he's exactly the type of player they should have had. And, He's there under their noses across keys, and then Gareth Jenkins comes, offers him a contract, and he, he goes to the Scarlets. It's just, uh, yeah, I mean, baffling, isn't it, really? It, it is baffling. And the thing that, that I find strange is that, and again, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, is that the Scarlets do have the strongest squad, yet every season they seem to pick up a couple of players from the Dragons who are deemed surplus to requirements. And turn Angus O'Brien as well. Angus O'Brien, Phil Price, turn them into good squad players. You know, actually, I think Angus O'Brien, you know, he's, he's got potential to be more than just a good squad player. Yeah. I think he's really, you know, a really competent, a really competent 10. But it's, uh, yeah, it, it does just baffle me that, that these players kind of, to be deemed surplus to requirements at the, the side that has had the thinnest squad over the years. And, um, and yeah, are able to to go and better themselves. Obviously, Tyler Morgan's down there now. I think that's I think it's a slightly different scenario. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it it is a bit of a baffler. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, some of these players won't play for Wales. They, they might not be frontline players you want to play against your Toulons and your Leinsters and stuff. But in terms of the grind of the normal season, they're absolutely perfect, aren't they? You know, Angus yeah. O'Brien not wanted at the Dragons by the sounds of it. You know, he had a bit of a setback early on with the Scarlet as he broke his leg, didn't he, against Racing? Mm. But yeah, he's he's been excellent for them. Um Lewis Rawlings has been one of the, the most important players um, you know, for a number of years. Phil Price has done reasonably well as well. Um, you know, they they sign other players as well, like that Paul Asquith from Australia. No nobody you know really... Asquith, Kennedy, these kind of players. Yeah. Kennedy's Welsh qualified as well. So, yeah, the, 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 the scouting system is significantly better than the other regions by the sounds of it, isn't it? So, um, yeah, proofs in the pudding, as I said. And, uh, yeah, they may not be top-end sort of international players, but they certainly strengthen the Scarlet squad, haven't they? So, um, yeah, the recruitment's been really smart. And they've, they've had more money than the other regions over the last few seasons. So they have been able to sign better front-line players as well, like Sam Lousy. Mm. You know, if he if he was, I know he's played for Tonga now, but if he wasn't uh, a Kiwi, then uh, you know he'd have won like fifty odd caps for another Tier One nation, probably, wouldn't he? He'd start for Wales, probably. So he's he's a top player. Blade Thompson's a top end player as well. Would have been an All Black, you know, hundred percent. I've been told that um, if he hadn't had injuries. Um, so you know, they they have signed high caliber players as well, but uh, certainly. Um, Given the limited budgets of the Welsh regions, the Scarlets have been smarter in uh, in what they've done recruitment-wise than, than the rest. Yeah, you've just got to make it. You know, in a if you're running the recruitment at the Welsh regions, you've got to to think clever and uh, and make every make every pound count. And uh, yeah, you know, I think yeah, Scarlets have done that better than uh, better than the other regions in uh, in recent times. 
To bring it back to this game, though, obviously you said there that Scarlett's got a, a decent chance. I'm going to trouble you for a prediction, Steph. What uh, What do you think the result is going to be? It's going to be really tight. Um, uh, you know, I'm key for the Scarlets is staying in the game for an hour for the first hour. If they can do that, then um, they get every chance and uh, don't want to jinx it. But I'm, I'm going to go for a narrow Scarlets win. There you have it. Right. Well, yeah, not uh, not too long. And like I say, uh, yeah, as we said right at the top of the show, really looking forward to these ones. So, uh, yeah, we'll, um, of course, be reviewing them on next week's show. So make sure you don't miss that. Time now to talk about the other big news story of the week. And that is the uh, the now, I think it's now officially called the Autumn Nations Cup, which will be uh, taking place in uh, November this year. So essentially a, a reworked version of the of the Autumn Internationals featuring the, the Six Nations sides plus, uh, plus some others. And it's going to be shown primarily on Amazon Prime with a couple of games on Channel 4. Uh, personally, I didn't think this was a massive surprise, Steph. I don't know about you. No, it wasn't. Um, look, you know, the fact of the matter is rugby union's on his ass financially and it needs cash. And the fastest way to get cash is to put it behind the paywall. And, uh, you know, let's be honest, I mean, you get a lot of people on social media saying that, um, and I appreciate times are hard for, for all, but, you know, they say that, um, oh, you know, I'm going to access the games, the Sonata, I'm not paying this. But, you know, so many people have got Amazon these days, Amazon Prime, you know. It's, it's just, it's widely available. It's, it's um, you know, you can get it free for a month, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there is some sort of dealer. Um, you can, yeah, which would mean that in theory you could you can sign up and uh, provide, provide you remember to cancel, you could have the, the, the Autumn Cup for, for free. Exactly, and I just think it's a no-brainer. They're getting more money. We're in trouble times. Every union's on its backside. They're going to get more money than they normally would, which would go back then from a Welsh perspective. Go back, hopefully, go back to the pro sides, then filter down to the grassroots rugby. So, um, I think, yeah, I think it's it's definitely definitely the right thing to do. Yeah, I generally speaking, you know, I, I I think particularly when it comes to international games, because that is the that is really your, your shop window for the sport. Uh, you know, I do like to see them on on free to air television. But as you said, there we're dealing with you know we're kind of through the looking glass here. This isn't normal. This isn't normal um, no. rules of engagement. We're in a position where they've had to scramble to get this tournament off the ground to start with. And they need to make it as successful as possible. Still no idea whether there's going to be any crowds looking increasingly like there's, you know, that that's going to be hard uh, to happen. Therefore, you've got to make it, you've got to make it count from a broadcast perspective. Now, actually, it works really, really well for Amazon from a commercial point of view, because as well as them expanding into sport like they've done with, with Premier League football and with tennis, as a time of year, this is a perfect time for them because it's heading into Christmas. Yeah. So it's a perfect time to, you know, to for them to try and recoup some of the money that they're spending on it. So all of those things make sense. Now the other thing is that I think in Wales it's undoubtedly it is it is a blow for uh, you know for for fans. Uh, I think particularly if you you know because because BBC have covered it for for years and years. Um, and it, it is tricky. I think particularly if you're an older, you know, if you're an older fan or, or something like that, then it's a blow. But 
if I was in the union's position, I'd be doing the same. Now, I think the other thing to bear in mind is that it's the, you know, this is replacing the autumn internationals. Now, England's games were already on, were already on Sky anyway. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, the others flitted around a bit. I think Scotland was still on the BB Island Channel Four have had for the last couple of years, but they have been on. You know, they played on BT a few years ago as well. So it has been, it has been a bit choppy and chopping and changing. The thing that's so important about this is the autumn internationals. You know, I used to, I used to absolutely love them going back 10, 15 years ago. Arguably, I enjoyed them more than the Six Nations because I just loved the opportunity of Wales, you know, being tested, you know, get the opportunity to beat in Australia or New Zealand. And even if it didn't happen, it was so, it was so exciting. There's been just overkill of playing against those nations. Um, yeah. And that there is a need to create something meaningful in the autumn. We've seen it with football and the, yeah. uh, and the, the Nations League. And that has essentially replaced friendlies. And, you know, it just it just gives a, a degree of something on the line, particularly if it means, you know, it makes qualifying for a Euros easier. So I think they've done a good job. And rugby has quite rightly looked at that and said, well, we need to do something with regards to the autumn as well. So this, my understanding of this is that this has been done kind of as a joint um a joint deal whereas normally England would sell their rights to whoever Wales to whoever this has been yeah. done as uh, as one so I mean if, if anything is going to go behind the paywall I would much rather it's autumn than six nations but with CVC it's increasing involvement with uh, with rugby and you know I still don't know whether I've seen the official announcements saying that they've they've bought a stake in the six nations but you know all that um, <laughs> yeah well exactly yeah all that uh, you know uh, <laughs> no smoke without fire and all that so you know if that is the case I think you can expect to see more of it I, I, I do think it's a worry for long term of of, of of rugby but with this one in this scenario I, I, I honestly don't think there's any option I agree um, I, I'm just going back to one of the points you made about um, overkill I agree 100% with that you know we, um, we seem to be playing Australia every year with the exact same Four Result. times, four yeah. times every year, and we lose yeah. in the last minute. Yeah. yeah, we started to reverse our trend a bit, but yeah, um, no, I, I agree. Um, it's like deja vu every time, but yeah, um, I agree with that. I mean, obviously, that that your point will will stand for the Six Nations as well, because we, from Wales' perspective, we've got a warm up against France. We play Scotland last year, yeah. Six Nations, and then we play a Six Nations with Fiji and Georgia. Great to see Georgia there, by the way. Mm. And we play the proper Six Nations, so there'll be overkill there as well, although it's got to be done for financial reasons. Um, my preference, when we've come out of this nightmare scenario, um, if we do, uh, in terms of the pandemic, um, would be to see to the return of three test tours. And we get them when we go over there, but them coming over here, so Wales will play South Africa three tests. So Wales play New Zealand three tests. Ireland play South Africa three tests, England, Australia three tests, etc., etc. What you could do then as well, you, people are talking about how we can raise more cash for the for the regions. You could bring back midweek games, for example, the Scarlets. You know, Fitzpatrick has said on the record, but you know, the Scarlets look like they're in negotiations with the All Blacks to play um, uh, an anniversary game. Um, whether it's New Zealand or the Maoris, I'm not sure, but to play some sort of game against them, that's going to be a sellout. They'll have TV money, etc., etc. You know, then they could play the Dragons or whatever, right? So that that would help, wouldn't it? The domestic game, let's be honest. And I don't know about you, but you know, when it's a three-test tour, 
it's got a bit of spice about it, doesn't it? You mm. know, something happens in the first test, somebody gets red carded, or or somebody, you know, Sonny Bill Williams has shown up with Jonathan Davis, then there's a bit of lip in the week, and then third second test, you know, Sonny Bill Williams gets his get his own back, etc. etc. Or the, the Welsh scrum got stuffed, so they you know, they're, they're fired up, you know. Three test tours have a little bit, bit of an extra edge to them, in my opinion. So I'd like to see them reinstated in the long run. But um, in terms of Amazon Prime, uh, as, as, as we've said, um, yeah, given the, the climate, I think it's a big risk in the long run to, to maybe go off um, free-to-air TV, especially the Six Nations. But at this moment in time, there's no choice. No, there's not, and yeah, there's a lot of a lot of points you've raised in there. I mean, yeah, the the overkill. I've said this before. You know, the, that's why I can't, as a as a fan, I'm I'm kind of less than enthusiastic about this um, about this tournament. But it's just it's got to happen. Just make it happen, and hopefully, it's as successful as it can be, so that we're able to keep things going in the long run. You know, I I certainly like the idea of uh, of the regional or club sides playing against internationals. I think that again, just appeals to the, the nostalgia in me, but you're right. It would certainly, it would certainly help in terms of, uh, in terms of getting fans down to, uh, down to regional grounds. Definitely. And however, with three test series, again, I, you know, I absolutely love them, but I think that if I was looking at it from a, the perspective of world rugby, I do think we've just got to be looking at how to get um, at how to get uh, the the tier two nations involved in a fair way, and I think if we end up playing, you know, playing um, playing New Zealand uh, in a three te- in a three test series or South Africa in a three test series, it does then mean that, that there's less opportunity to play against those yeah. sides. I think yeah. I think you a play, more you, tournament. You could, you could play one. You could play three tests, and then. World rugby can make it compulsory to play one test against a tier two nation as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they like could. Um, and and something like that has to happen regardless. You know, the, we do just need to 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 realise the the contribution that that those that those nations make to the game. And do you know what? It's just it's how, one of the best things I've ever seen in rugby was Japan beating South Africa in, uh, in in 2015 and the fact that then it was followed up you know with a with a fantastic uh, world cup campaign in 2019 you know that that if you'd have told me even even you go back to 2007 a wales you know a wales second 15 put nearly put nearly 60 70 points on japan in the world cup and yet you fast forward 8 years and 12 years and they're and they're a serious force in world rugby we do need to look at, at the way that um, there is a there's a pathway through. Of course, it's up to individual nations to to produce the right players and get the right coaches, but there does have to be an opportunity for them to dine at the top table, and that that I think is really really important. So in the long run, this autumn thing just they just it has to be cracked, and there has to be uh, there has to be a, a good opportunity for for developing nations to to play against uh, play against the big boys, uh, and it also just has to be something that appeals to. Um, that appeals to a, a casual fan. You know, it has to be. This, you know, I think even, you know, obviously people like you and me are, are nuts for it, right? And we'll watch, we'll watch all kinds of all kinds of rugby. 
but at the same time you do have to you do have to just go right well if we want more money in the game we're going to have to attract an audience of someone who might watch three four games of rugby every year and having a meaningful autumn competition whether it's whether it's a test series or it's a, or it's some kind of competition without watering down the world cup that's the, that is the nut that's there to be cracked world rugby and the, the individual nations go and, uh, and the individual unions go and solve it yeah ab- absolutely um I think, um, you know, in terms of the emerging nations, if we use our term over tier mm-hmm. two nations, I think, yeah, there is a world rugby should be should should, should be making almost forcing the tier one nations to play them. I mean, obviously, the, the tier one nations have got to get some sort of financial benefit out of it, but mm-hmm. I still think, you know, if, in normal times, if Wales play Georgia on um, Friday night, for example, they'd probably get fifty thousand. If not more, you know, cheaper tickets in the stadium, etc. So yeah, I, I you know, you said South Africa beat sorry, Japan beating South Africa is one of the best things you've ever seen in rugby. Mm. One of the best things I've ever seen in sport, let yeah, on. Agreed. Agreed. It was just phenomenal and to see the way they've kicked on. I I don't count them as a tier two nation anymore. No, I, I don't, absolutely not. Tier one and they got the economy as well to sustain a professional domestic league as well. So I think they're uh, <laughs> they're they're moving forward quite fast now. So um yeah, I definitely agree. I think that that's going to be a priority of world rugby to ensure the tier two nations like Georgia have some sort of some sort of route to the top. Um, I'm not saying throw them in the Six Nations because I think that's a bit too far. But I think yeah. they should at least have I don't know a two-legged playoff even against the team against a wooden spoon, make it as difficult as possible for them to qualify so that if they actually do, then they deserve it. Um, but you know, at least give them a glimmer of hope and. You know, for the tier one nations to to at least have have to play a tier two nation twice a season, for example. So, um, I think that's probably the way forward. Yeah, and you're right that it does. You know, it has to work commercially as well. That's the that's the the fundamentals of it. It can't just you know, it can't just be a, a nice theory and practice. And that's where I think that you know, like you say, there, Wales feed you on a Friday night. We probably still do fifty thousand, admittedly, with reduced ticket prices and stuff, and getting kids down and stuff like that, but. Wales playing Georgia in a, you know, in a meaningful group game of some kind of competition that you actually want to win and having, you know, I'm imagining scenarios here, but let's say it's three teams in a pool and we've already lost to South Africa on the, on the first, on the first game or we drew with them or something. And there's something on, on the line there. Then that then starts to, that starts to become something that, you know, maybe 60, 70,000 will, will turn up for. So it, yep. it is meaningful is the word I keep coming back to. That is what we kind of have to have to create with the autumn. Uh, and I don't think this autumn is it. I might change my mind if uh, if Wales beat England and, and Ireland and, you know, suddenly kind of top of the top of the pool. But for what that, you, what we, sorry, what, what you got to take into consideration as well, mind? It was a front story of the rugby paper today by Peter Jackson, and he made an excellent point. He said, in terms of the world rankings, the World Cup draw has been pushed back to um, December. Mm-hmm. Wales, say they had a bar tournament, they could be in the third tier, and they could end up with England and South Africa in their pool. So, um, you know, they are a bit more meaningful maybe than people are making out. So, um, Yeah, that, you, look, you're, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right from a... Um, yeah, you know, if you're if you're Wayne and if you're Wayne Pivot, you, you want to start getting some wins under your belt as yeah. well, and and to to relieve some of that pressure. So there is meaning in that regard. I think meaningful. You know, when I use that expression, it's more 
with regards to to selling it in to people you know to getting people excited and to for there being something genuinely on the line and being able to explain it in a way that I don't know just appeals to as many people as possible and and that's the nut that um that the eggheads have got to crack over the uh well you know I suppose over the next year really presumably with this autumn nations cup kind of having a full identity and stuff and crucially with them having been able to monetize it with amazon prime i think a version of it will come back next year but quite what it looks like um you know i think i think that's uh that probably remains to be seen yeah interesting times as well obviously with cbc coming on board um i think we can have a lot of change at both domestic and, and international level over the next three or four years so um i suppose it's just watch your space isn't it really but um I just like to see the status quo shaken up a little bit, mm. you know, because with rugby, it is like the same old, same old. Yeah, Six Nations is a great competition, but we're resting on our laurels a little bit as well, aren't we? You know, oh, we oh, got yeah. Six Nations, so it's fine. Well, no, let's look to make it better, you know? Exactly. And, you, you know, what you might find is you have the Six Nations and it's fine with a, um, you know, in the short term and you sell you sell those rights to, to Sky or Amazon or whoever it is and CVC make a killing. If they then exit the sport and you end up, you know, like Formula One has done to a certain degree with a, an aging fan base and a, a much lower profile, what then becomes of the Six Nations? You know, you've kind of, you've killed a cash cow, what next? And that's the, that's the thing that I'm much more interested in how they can build a, you know, you're absolutely right. Shake up the status quo and build build some tournaments and evolve them and, and do it in a way that means that we end up with, with better quality rugby, not players just flogged to death because they've got to play 13 tests every year. And, um, you know, finding that balancing act is, is going to be tricky, but it certainly can't carry on the way it has done. Absolutely not. And uh, I just think as well, um, uh, the, you know, the, the club game, of the domestic game has been under commercialized as well, hasn't it? Mm. And that's the the big hope of CVC that yeah, it's a big risk, but you know, we need a global season. Mm. You know, international rugby ruins a club game, really, doesn't it? I know international should always be a pinnacle. I probably make this point every time I'm on this podcast, but um that that needs to uh that needs to change. Um you know, nailed on that uh um, you know, the, the South African Super Rugby teams are coming into the Pro 14. Uh, I, I, I've I spoken to people in the know and they're pretty confident that there'll be a British and Irish League in 2025 when the TV deal ends and that'll lead to the the South African teams coming in the Pro 14 is um, perhaps, perhaps CVC's way to um, push the Springboks into the Six Nations. Mm. <laughs> Whether you agree with that, I don't know, but you know they obviously want the South African market. So, um, but yeah, I, I just think you know we, rugby hasn't worked professionally really. It worked; it's worked to a certain extent, but it's not reached its potential. And it's it got to a certain level where it was reasonably good, and it's gone backwards, isn't it, over the last five years yeah. across the board, isn't it? Really, especially at club level. Like they ruined the Heineken Cup, didn't they? Abs- absolutely ruined. You know, yeah. I think you said before, and we on this podcast, I think a month ago, whatever it was, I think you made that point. And I just think we're at a crossroads now, aren't we? And I just think we need to try things. Um, so I just think it's going to be fascinating. You know, why waste a good crisis? You know. Well, that's it, isn't it? That is the. Uh, you know, I, I I think you're absolutely right with that. But 
more and more I get the feeling <laughs> that this crisis is being a bit wasted. But I, yeah, I do think right. that the, the thing is here is that CVC are the, you know, I can't think of an analogy because I'm I'm far too tired, Steph. I'm afraid, but um, yeah. it's they they are they are the ones who have the opportunity to shape these things up, right? And that's for good and for bad. They're going to be commercially driven, right? So whatever they do, it's going to be it's going to be to line their own pockets. However, that might just mean that they're able to to crack enough skulls to get some proper change at the top of at the top of the game, and yeah. with their fingers in the pies of Premiership rugby, Six Nations. Pro 14. There's also rumours that they're uh, that they're willing to invest um, or are trying to outbid another investment company in the the Trans Tasman competition. Yeah, um, that's that's scheduled for I think 2022 maybe. I think next season might be the same as this season. Um, so that again, you know, when you start to have that much of a stake in the global game, you've got the opportunity to call the shots because once that once those clubs and, and unions have taken your money you know cvc will want their pound of flesh and and i hope that the the people who are making the decision there have the sense to say right we're not just going to flog the players to death we're going to create much better uh, much better quality tournaments and like you said there don't have international and uh, and club rugby overlapping because it dilutes the quality dilutes the quality it dilutes the the interest dilutes the interest it dilutes the money so that is that's my hope is that um is that you know while it is you know we're, we're kind of dancing with the devil a little bit here yeah there is the opportunity to get things done and another thing in terms of international rugby right i think there's far too much emphasis on world cups the world cup should always be the pinnacle mm. but i remember i think it was a month or two back i was reading an interview with rory best and he was talking about Ireland's failed World Cup campaigns. And he was like, lead up to 2007, he was like, everybody was like, oh, everything's by the World Cup, everything's by the World Cup. And then they sort of peaked before the World Cup and then they flopped, you know, out in the pool stage, lost to France and Argentina. Um, so they, there's a bit too much emphasis. Oh, we're building towards, you know, you're coaches all the time. You know, they're, they're putting young players out, you know, not the strongest teams, and they say, Oh, you know, we're, we're building towards the World Cup. You know, you've lost. So disappointed you. Oh no, I'm positive. You know, mm. we're building towards the World Cup. And I'm like, yeah, fine, build towards the World Cup. But you, it's, you know, if you bought a ticket for a game, mm. do you get what I mean? It's yeah, oh, I do. Yeah, the, the balance isn't right. The balance isn't right between building for the future. It's an excuse, isn't it? And building towards the World Cup. Steph, you you'll, have, you'll have been sat in the Millennium Stadium the same as I have on a piss miserable November. Day, you know, uh, half past five, and then the the trains are all cancelled on the way home, and you've just watched the side get, you know, you watch the, the Welsh national side get, you know, Australia beat you by twenty points, or South Africa beat you by twenty points, and you've paid fifty, sixty quid for the yeah. privilege of it. Well, that, you know, that's that's, and you're right, you know, I'm sure Warren Gatland sides did learn things about that about those games, and I probably don't blame him for making those decisions, but you're right, there has to come a point where. Um, you can't you can't just mess around in in international games because you're building towards the World Cup. And again, that's you know that might well be where there's opportunities with these you know with um whatever the what we're calling them you know the, the kind of the the tour games or or opportunities like that. You know, it does give you a bit more of an opportunity. But that's only going to happen if we stop if we stop flogging the players to death because they're playing they're playing too much rugby as it is. And um, so, yeah, for me, it's about reducing the number of fixtures and getting some good tournaments uh, across the across the, the global season. And um, 
Yeah, I, I tell you what, the, it looks interesting that that Trans Tasman competition. That really does because for me, Super Rugby it blew up and it just it, it went it went too big. It became too complicated, and again, the quality was diluted. And actually, I think that that Australia New Zealand plus uh, plus a Japanese side and um, and uh, you know a, a Pacific Nation side of some sorts that feels like the kind of thing that would get would get people in those countries excited about it. Yeah, definitely. Um... And, you know, competitions where there's, I know the Six Nations is one, obviously, but the as we said, you know, the autumn is, some of the games are a bit, not meaningless, but there's no sort of jeopardy. There's no prize at the end of it. Playing the All Blacks is a bit different. It is, yeah. Um, yeah, you need, yeah, you, you need some sort of competition. Like football, soccer had a similar problem, didn't they? Like outside mm. of the World Cup and European qualifiers, the games are like the friendlies are a waste of the waste of time isn't it oh, yeah. dead rubbers and rugby test matches in rugby are, i've got a bit more um meaning maybe than the friendlies in football do but it's a similar sort of scenario though isn't it really they, yeah, they need, they're not what they they're not what they once were you know and I, and I think that's just because of the the sheer number of them and you think back to you know you think back to rugby kind of pre 2004 kind of thing and you would have you know maybe South Africa would come over and tour Wales and play a number of club games and then you might get one or two tests against uh, uh, against the, the Welsh national side uh, and there's so much riding on it that that you know that's kind of what it all builds towards but yeah when you play you know when you play 12 tests a season it's uh, it, it doesn't have the the same the same pull and therefore by definition it starts to creep into that friendly territory yeah, absolutely, and um, I think CV, as as we said, you know, CVC aren't in this for the goodness of you know of the game, and they 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 want their pound of flesh. But obviously, the positive for us, hopefully, is the way they're going to get their pound of flesh is by mm. making the game sure better. That, yeah. So I think we will see more meaningful competitions. <laughs> the, the you know, like the the Nations Cup, etc. In um, mm. in football, it's never going to be as important as the Euros or the. You know, the World Cup, obviously, and it'll be the same in rugby, but it is something, isn't it? You know, it's it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a massive improvement. Yeah, and, and hopefully we'd see the same in rugby. But the only, again, you know, we can't be. There's no, there's no such thing as Nirvana, really, is it? You know, it's 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 because there's so many countries playing football, it doesn't matter. But because there's so little playing top level rugby, does it devalue the World Cup? That's the question. It's about the balance, isn't it? Hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely agree. Well, it's definitely all the answers, but uh, yeah, <laughs> we will see change. Yeah, I think we will see change, and uh, and like you said earlier, watch this space, or at the very least, listen to it here on the attacking scrum. Steph, been great to chat to you. Uh, enjoy the games next week, and I'm sure, uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll chat very very soon. And to all you listeners, thanks for listening, and we will be back to chat rugby with you next week. Podcast Network.